HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome to What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. On the line today with me is Mr. Raul Baxter, who is a 30-year veteran of the meat industry. Uh, His global career has included tours at Sara Lee Meat Group, John Morrell, and 15 years at Smithfield Foods, which will be the subject of our discussion today. As president of Smithfield International, Mr. Baxter grew the company's first foreign pork brands in Asia under the Smithfield All-Natural Umbrella brand. He was the first president of Smithfield Europe, where he was instrumental in Smithfield purchasing and developing companies outside the United States in anticipation of an expanded European Union and emerging market access. Uh, Prior to Smithfield, uh, Mr. Baxter was with John Morrell, which was owned by Chiquita. He helped to launch their first brand identified fresh meat program. He also worked in their legal department and on union related issues. These are all parts of this conversation we're going to have. Uh, Currently, Mr. Baxter is the president of World Food and Agriculture Business Development. Mr. Baxter works with clients in Brazil, Korea, China, Japan, and the EU on pork and beef development projects. Mr. Baxter, you are truly the international man of meat. I don't know about that. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on. I understand the world has all of a sudden become flat. So they would say, now, how much of a hand did you actually have yourself in, um, since you developed markets in Asia uh, in this Smithfield purchase of, um, I mean, sorry, in the purchase of Smithfield by Shuang Ye- uh, can't even say it, sorry, Shuang I, I Wei. I had none. When I first was going to China, uh, Shanwei was still basically a government health company. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it went through a process like many government companies where it was, taken private, and then began to grow on its own. But uh, 
I knew of them, but I had never mm-hmm. done anything with them. I see. So why don't you walk us through this big Smithfield deal that has, um, I mean, even the, it's even penetrated the mainstream media. Um, and indeed, uh, yesterday, Mr. Uh, Larry Pope, the CEO of Smithfield, was testifying in front of Congress, if I'm not mistaken, or at least in front of an agricultural committee. So tell us about the deal and what it means and why we should care. Well, it, um, <clears throat> I think the fact that it's such a big company being bought by China, if it was maybe a, an English company or French, it wouldn't be quite so much the, uh, the attention, but mm-hmm. it is Chinese. And I, I think this thing whole started when uh, Continental Grain was one of the largest shareholders, had written letters to Smithfield, uh, Smithfield's board of directors saying they're very unhappy with their performance and they should consider splitting the company up, and uh, that in turn precipitated Smithfield to use a couple of financial services to explore opportunities. Two months later, the deal was announced that Shanway was buying Smithfield, and it really is a, a, a major deal because they are buying Smithfield for about 4.7, including the debt Seven point one billion. Yeah, that's but big that bucks. equates to thirty four dollars a share. And at the time the deal was announced, I think the stock was trading twenty five and a half. Uh-huh. So a big premium to that. Very big premium. So really, this kind of goes back to just the dollars and cents. Now, why are the Chinese buying this company for so much money? Why aren't they just uh, you know buying pork? Well, I think that uh, uh, they want to have more of a consistent supply. Mm -hmm. But I think they they look really at Smithfield as being a jumping board for the rest of the world because they see Smithfield being a well-run operation in the United States with good plants and also large plants. And they've demonstrated that they could satisfy Chinese needs for three or four years now. Uh-huh. And uh, but also, I think they're very interested in the fact that Smithfield has operations in the European Union, and has been very active in selling pork all over the world. Absolutely. I mean, didn't Smithfield one of the biggest pork producers in in uh, Eastern in the Eastern European countries now? Yes, Poland, Romania, they're the largest. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, they don't have the greatest track record in environmental. Um... <laughs> Over there, I'm hearing. But anyway, that's another conversation, Raul. Well, but you know what? It, it, you know, one has to realize where China is and where they have been. Mm-hmm. And you know, for us to try to translate what's going on inside China, and that's that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So the Chinese are buying this company, but everything is going to remain in the United States. And everything, according to everything I read, is the Chinese assure us that nothing will change. The management will not change. The practices will not change. How confident do you feel in that being, uh, you know, borne out over the course of the next, say, four to 10 years? You know, I I think I'm I'm 100% confident. Really? Because one has to look at this from the selfish standpoint of economics, and when companies uh, look to buy companies in other countries that they have no experience, and particularly language, uh, they hope to be able to keep uh, people who understand their countries and understand what goes on. And it, uh, it you know, they will have Smithfield as a subsidiary. But uh, you know, if you look at Smithfield sales, which are what about twelve billion. Uh, and you equate that to what could maybe go out of here, most it would be the profits. Uh-huh. Everything else will stay, the people will stay, the labor, 
unions will stay, the wage rates will stay. I mean, you hear so many stupid, uh, ignorant things being promulgated about what could happen. But uh, yeah, that would be me. Not. <laughs> Well, I just wonder, like, for instance, the Chinese don't have a long track record with the concepts of, say, trade unions or labor unions. And so, for instance, I know one of the concerns that has been raised, certainly um, among Smithfield workers, is that, yes, they just signed a four-year union contract. But what's going to happen at the end of those four years? I mean, what in what way can Smithfield guarantee that uh, that this Chinese parent company will continue to honor labor union contracts or even continue to hire labor union workers? Well, I mean, one has to be, again, realistic. I mean, Sean Wei by buying Smithfield in the United States is now basically an American company. And they have to fulfill all the requirements of American laws, American contracts. Mm-hmm. So whatever happens in four years would happen the same whether Sean Wei was involved or not. I don't know. I'm not sure I, I agree with you there. I mean, it seems to me entirely possible that at the end of four years, they can say, sorry, we're dispensing with the labor union and we're going to hire non-union workers. I mean, what, what's to say they wouldn't do that? Listen, uh, you know, that, uh, number one, uh, it may sound doable, but it's, it's, it's really not realistic to decertify a union. But the, the reality is that you have to uh, pay workers to get workers, but you also have to pay workers to keep. Yes, and there. I mean, if you look in the environment with the turnover of workers in the American meat industry, there's no way that they're going to upset that. Uh huh. Right. I mean, you know, again, America's America, China's China. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this: How much more production? I know that uh, that Mr. Pope, the CEO of Smithfield, is touting this as really great for American workers and American pork producers. How much more production? Will this, you know, in a sort of percentage level, will this uh, secure for American pork producers? Well, you look at uh, Japan with a population of about 130 million. I think last year they imported roughly about $2 billion of pork. Uh And uh, China imported about uh, $900 million. So I think what you will see is that uh, uh, certainly within the next year or two that we could see uh, the import numbers for China at least equaling Japan. And I I think realistically, again, uh, God forbid anybody should think realistically, but, um, (laughs) you know, I think the first thing that this will do is it will even out sales to China Right now, you have, for example, bids on large amounts of business, but maybe it just happens for July, August, September, uh-huh. then all of a sudden, boom, it's over. And so I think this thing will be a 12-month business. I mean, there will be some ups and downs, basically, because of holidays in China, which are different than ours. But I think that it will increase quite a bit and also will increase the amount I mean, and the type of pork and I really believe that uh, they will start uh, uh, bringing uh, Smith, Smithfield processed pork into China. So by right processed now, pork, if you're you a company mean... outside of China trying to get processed products into China, it's insane. So processed products by that, you mean like hams, bacon? Right, uh, right. Huh, interesting. And the Chinese eat a lot of offal, so there's a lot more of you know use of the entire animal, is there not, in Chinese it's, cuisine? It's really... A, 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 an amazingly important market mm-hmm. for the United States because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the things like tongues and stomachs and hearts, 
uh, all those are, uh, go to China at a tremendous premium to what they would bring in the United States. So the more value that you can get into what's called the slaughter credits, the more value there is in the entire pig, the more value that goes back to producers. Mm-hmm. So Very that alone makes it a tremendously important market. Yeah, but so now that we've sold our this company, now that Smithfield is sold to this large company, then we aren't going to see those premium prices. Are I mean, because one of the things that I read, uh, say in the LA Times, um, was that uh, one industry insider said that this was just a way for the Chinese to essentially f- uh, fix prices because once they get their hands on this pork supply, then they can determine what the prices are, and then they can in turn pass those prices on to back to the American worker. So. So, you know, while right now Smithfield can sell at a premium for tongues and hearts, once uh, it's owned by Shuanghui, it's it's not so much necessarily true that we're going to be still selling that premium price, right? No, I, I think that's pretty ridiculous because <laughs> uh, uh, Smithfield has to continue as an operating company. Right, and they still have to and continue. And it has profit. to make money. It has to function. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what Shuanghui does and how it prices products in China is no different than the way we sell to the Japanese. They determine how they're going to sell it within their own country. Mm -hmm. I see. Listen, we have to take a short break, and we'll come right back with Raul Baxter, uh, an industry insider in in the meat industry, and and we'll continue this really interesting discussion about Smithfield that's got everybody's undies in a bundle. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. And we're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and on the phone with me today is Raul Baxter, a um, meat industry insider who's explaining to me the ins and outs of this very big deal of Smithfield um, Pork Company being bought by a Chinese, um, a larger Chinese company, and um, and the ramifications of that in terms of trade, in terms of what it means for American workers, pork production, and um, a whole host of other issues that surround the acquisition of one company by another in the international world. And with the international man of meat on the radio with me, Aaron, I know you don't, you're not grooving on that title, Raul, but I'm telling you, I think I would put that on my business card. I think it's excellent. (laughs) So tell me, how much of an impact is this deal with Smithfield going to have on the American pork supply and American prices? Do you think we are going to have see a squeeze in uh, in our, the amount of pork that we see in our marketplace, and will that commensurately raise prices? I think that uh, over time, it's not going to happen immediately, but over time uh, that you will see the amount of pork needed uh, in, in America go up, and mm-hmm. what Smithfield can't supply, it will spill over to other packers who in turn will need more hogs. So I think that it's... Uh, it's a positive for prices. Uh huh. Why do you think why why is this why is this even being debated in Congress? I mean, yes, it's a big deal, but as you pointed out, these deals like this happen all the time. Is it just because it's a seven point three billion dollar deal, or is it because it's the Chinese, or is it because we are selling a big part of our food supply chain to a foreign national? I'm 
you know, what I'm curious why this caught the attention uh, so um, significantly of, say, Congresswoman Stabenow. I, I think it's probably a combination of all those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also, too, uh, you know, I found that uh, there's nothing that politicians love than to get uh, the spotlight for a while uh, to show how concerned they are with things with absolutely no downside. And what's better <laughs> than to, to pick on a great big packer in the evil empire of China? Yeah. I mean, let's face it, nobody said a word when JBS was a Brazilian company that bought... I know. Uh, one of the biggest companies in the United States, which was Swift. Right. Yes, that's you know, what that's. So uh, you know, all, and all of a sudden now it's some kind of uh, of a major international conspiracy to get control over our food supply. Well, I mean, I guess there is maybe some reason for that. I don't know. I mean, well, it's, it's you know, China's a lot bigger than Brazil. What takes place in China and and. They're probably true. I mean, mm-hmm. to begin with, uh, you know, we look at China as if it's one uh, homogenous country, and mm-hmm. I look at China as at least twenty different countries. Mm-hmm. And so, and there's no regu- federal regulation like we have in this country. Yes. So, uh, but that's China. I mean, again, as I said, Sean uh, Wei bought an American company. American company is subject to all these rules. Nothing will change, mm-hmm. and no, there's absolutely no way that Chinese pork is going to come into America. Number one, you have a a disease problem, which I think, barring some dramatic technical breakthrough, is going to be permanent. I mean, it's a it's a hoof and mouth disease. China probably has diseases science hasn't identified, let alone given given names to. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, is the economic reality. I mean, you know, China uh, is roughly the size of the United States. Half of that is desert and these vertical mountains. The other half has 1.3 billion people and their agriculture. So their cost of raising corn and soybeans is double, triple what it is here. They're importing more and more grains all the time. So mm-hmm. it costs them at least twice probably closer to three times what it does in the United States to raise pork. Right. So, you know, you have that. Plus, the third thing is, before they could do anything, the uh, Department of Agriculture would have to go over and inspect their plants. And American inspection is a little different than other countries in that we approve either an entire country's inspection system or none. Right. Now, the Europeans do it differently. They come and they, they approve plant by plant by plant. Mm. But I like the USDA approach better. Well, there's no way in hell that uh, they're going to approve the Chinese plants for a long time. So that's right. China. Right. Uh, again, uh, everything, you know, I, I was telling somebody, I said, if you, you know, the, the American meat industry is the most inspected industry in the world. Uh, there are more inspectors, line inspectors, veterinarians, government workers uh, in American plants than all the rest of the food industry put together. In fact, most food is not inspected at all. Right. I mean, every pig for every pig or every steer that goes through a USDA inspected plant is basically given an individual autopsy. That doesn't exist anywhere in that. So all those rules are going to continue. This is now. An American company, just like when we were in Poland or France, or we had to follow those regulations. Mm-hmm. Same thing here. Mm-hmm. Over time, I think some of the American regulations, uh, because they make sense, will be integrated into China. But that's going to take time. But that's China's issues. 
So they, yeah, that is their issues. Let's talk for a second about the the con- the whole sort of like how are they going to distribute this pork from the United States to China? Are they sending whole carcasses over? Are they packaging here? And if they're packaging, how do they maintain food safety requirements with that? I mean, I, I'm a little sketchy about those details of, of actually how it's going to get over there and in what form it will take. Well, the the form that it has been taking is uh, in what they call three-piece carcasses. You take right. a carcass, you split it down the middle, and then you cut a shoulder in the middle and a ham, and you fold that into one box. It makes this tremendously strong box. Uh-huh. Uh, and then those goes, those have to pass all American inspection, and each piece is given a USDA seal with the inspection number of that plant. It then goes into a cold storage, which is supervised by the USDA, mm-hmm. and then it goes in a boat. And then mm-hmm. as soon as it becomes part of the Chinese possession, it's their responsibility. Right. So we don't have to worry about well, – not that we did anyway, but <laughs> – well, no, I mean, I, I tell yeah. you, you, you know, you just, there's so many things that happen in international trade that have nothing to do with food safety, mm-hmm. and they're being used as the guys for trade barriers all the time, and one has to be a little cynical when you look at a country that passes something or has a requirement that they've never had before to see what the real reason is for it. Well, what, for instance, is the Chinese position on, on some of the drugs that we use in commercial hog production here? I know that, for instance, ractopamine has been banned in many, many countries. And um, do the Chinese accept that, or is Smithfield changing their protocols and how they raise pigs in order to satisfy their requirements? No, I don't think. I mean, again, Shanwei is just one company in China. Mm-hmm. It may be a large one, but it is still one company. So right. if they have the ractopamine ban the pork that will come in from Smithfield will be ractopamine free. Yeah, I think I saw actually you know, in the paper that they were that Smithfield was creating a whole division of animals that were going to be ractopamine free and I thought I, I realize now that it was for that purchase. Um, well, what no, about I other drugs? That, no, they had been doing that before. I think oh, really? for at least a year, yeah. Hmm. And and the reason was because I mean they you know trying to figure out what the real you know, was it just to bury? Was it just to make people's life miserable? Was it to make costs more expensive? Whatever. Uh, the best way to do it is, okay, you know, if you pay for it, we'll, we'll do whatever you want. So mm-hmm. they have, uh, and you, the only way that you can guarantee that you are ractopamine free is you have to be able to control everything, including being able to test on your own to back up whatever happens in China, because the regulation of of zero tolerance for ractopamine, you get can get tremendous false positives. Oh, really? Now, let me ask you this as a sort of more generalized question: Why why do some countries ban ractopamine? Well, you know, it, uh, there there are there are many people who think that uh, ractopamine can affect meat quality. Ractopamine mm-hmm. can affect uh, like the pigs getting nervous. You know, it's only fed about the last. Uh, 45 days before slaughter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, Europe, I, I've always felt that the Europeans um, are Olympic-grade uh, pros at being able to screw Americans with their regulations. <laughs> and, um, you know, they do that. And many times they'll be using stuff that they ban. So um, I, I think that, uh, you know, in Russia... 
also put that on. Well, you know, who knows what really happens in Russia? Yeah. Um, well, the Japanese and, and, you know, banned it too, didn't uh, they? The the best way is that uh, again, if people will pay for it, and that's the only way that you can get into it, then you adapt to it. Mm-hmm. Now, what if people in general were willing to pay a higher price across the board, say even in the United States? What would it take for uh, pork producers to, for instance, stop using uh, something like ractopamine or some of the other drugs that go into pork production? I, I think with ractopamine, probably it would result for pigs, maybe about 4 or $5 penalty, not using it. And, and I uh-huh. may be completely off. Per animal. I, I think that it, 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 people are not going to use something unless you're getting a benefit, right. economic benefit. Right. Um, but isn't it true that, the, that there are lots of humane issues around the use of ractopamine? I mean, even Temple Grandin has said that this is really something that is so cruel. The animals really suffer from it. How do they? How does she say they suffer from it? I mean, she said because they something. get sick, they fall over, they experience well. That, distress, that gets back they... to what I talked about: meat quality and mm-hmm. and the, and the, and animals supposedly getting nervous. I mean, there, there are some real issues to it. Yeah, right. You know, but so, I mean, something that's kind of interesting is the three plants that make rat dopamine are all in China. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. There's an irony for you. Well, what about, I mean, I just wonder, like, pork production has such a bad name. Um, I mean, quite honestly, you know, most people think of Smithfield as kind of the antichrist of, of animal husbandry and uh, and even uh, not even all that great for their workers. And um, I just, I'm just curious how, what it would take to sort of alter the course of some of these big producers to to make small changes that may or may not actually cost a lot of money. I mean, I can't, I mean, $4 a pig, that's pretty big in the margin of a pig's, you know, in terms of their profit margin, right? What's the general profit on a, on a pig carcass? Well, you know, that has been very seasonal. Actually, mm-hmm. the, the greatest penalty for anybody raising livestock, whether you have two pigs and a chicken or a thousand pigs, mm-hmm. is this whole ethanol program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's I talk mean, about that for you know, a minute. No matter how you cut it, your greatest, by far your greatest expense is grain. Yes. And that, and the cost of corn has gone up, oh, like what, four times, five times what right. it was five right. years and, ago? And it has come down a little bit, but it's, uh, yeah, you know, that was an artificially created situation which hasn't gone away. Mm-hmm. And do you see any uh, any movement towards that going away, like finding another product to use for ethanol as opposed to corn, like switchgrass or something like that? Well, I think, you know, all those are reasonable alternatives. I, mm-hmm. You know, this was done, you know, by both political parties so they can both take their hat off for it. But, you know, I can remember being in Brazil 20 years ago, and I'd never heard of ethanol, and, mm-hmm. and people I was with took me out to two ethanol plants and and then both people said that they had first started with corn but they learned very quickly that corn would number one never be economical and secondly would never really produce a high quality ethanol Hmm. and you know sugarcane for example is almost 12 times more efficient to make ethanol than corn Mm -hmm. but the reason obviously corn was picked in this country is because our entire infrastructure is based around corn you know the, the, the type of trucks that we use, the grain elevators, all that stuff. So, you know, I think the idea is to have some kind of renewable fuel, never realizing uh, what the effect would be. What, the long-term effect on livestock agriculture? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It seems like somebody was asleep at the wheel at the... (laughs) 
in the Department of Agriculture when they let that go through. I mean, really. Who who was the uh, USDA secretary then? Uh, when I, ethanol I came in. I hope you're grading on the curve. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not to I, worry. Not, hey, listen, really I don't know either, sure. but... Um, I'm surprised that Vilsack hasn't done much to um, to roll that program back. Well, I mean, he Vilsack is just going to sort of rubber stamp what the White House tells him to. Mm. And and you know, let's face it. Unfortunately, there's too many people trapped in bad decisions. Yeah. You know, in private industry, if something's not working, you change it. In government, they just seem to throw more money at it. But my experience has been that you create something. And, you know, automatically you create industry groups and you create lobbyists and you have a whole set of interests that you have to face. Yes. And I'm sure that, you know, for my, there are people adamantly opposed to that on, on another side that would defend it because it, it, to them it increases the value of grain. Yes. Well, if I were a corn producer, I would certainly be heavily in favor of using right, it for absolutely. ethanol. I mean, which just goes to show you how powerful the corn lobby is, isn't it? Right. Well, it, it, and it shows you how uh, how diverse American agribusiness is. How the interests conflict within agriculture. Yes, I agree. But I, you know, I, I don't think our agriculture is actually as diverse as it could be. I mean, it seems to me that when you know the majority of our cropland is planted out to corn, soy, and rice, that's not really that diverse, right? Well, you know, I'm thinking chicken, turkey. Pigs, chicken, ducks, yeah. you know, right. Yeah, animal livestock. Tree, I mean, sure. all, uh, well, all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, one also has to look at, at how you make money farming. I can't think of a more difficult uh, profession to be in to make money than, mm-hmm. than farming or yes, ranch. I agree. So, you know, and, and uh, you know, you have, I, as I look at producers, I separate out those people who are in it to make money and those people that are part-timers. There's a huge difference, and, you know, yes, everybody, you know, wants to be healthier. Everybody wants this, and everybody wants that, but everything also has a price. Yes. And I think, you know, I, I believe that, you know, people have to have free choice, and if you want to pay for these things, people will gladly do it for you. I agree, but I think that uh, I think that there there must be some way. And and as I was saying to my last guest, I, I feel like sort of the goal in my mind of of acquiring all this information and disseminating these radio programs is to bring something closer to a common ground between the niche producer and the very, you know, high level protocols that they follow. And then sort of the industrial producer where arguably there are quite a few issues uh, surrounding the way animals are raised in this country. And I, you know, I'm not going to go, go through them with you because I know you know what they are, but, um, but I think there must be some kind of a happy medium that would satisfy the public um, in terms of being, uh, comfortable with the standards of animal welfare, for example, of um, being comfortable with the way environmental issues are managed. And I feel that those are two big issues for the United States, as well as the use of antibiotics in the food chain. Those are the three big issues to me that make consumers think twice about uh, continuing to support the industrial meat supply. And um, I'd like to see more communication between the groups, um, which is why I invite people like you on my show. (laughs) 
so that you know there's a, a, a wider understanding of, of what it takes to produce meat in this country or any commodity, but especially meat. And um, you know, it's great to have people like you come in and, and talk about the other side of the business instead of of you know all of the you know God love them you know all the earthy crunchies who are are doing it you know, in the old fashioned way. Well, we don't really have room for an old fashioned way. I don't think, I think we have to continue with industrial production, but I think it can be better. That's not really true. I I think that, uh, I mean, because I have some people I work with that are pretty small, Mm -hmm. but you know, uh, uh, if you're in say organic uh, beef cattle or something, you know, that's okay, but you have to get somebody that's going to pay the added cost of doing that. It's, It's the responsibility of those people to get other people that will pay for it. Yes, of course, and I, and they do that, you know. But I think that there's that there's room for improvement in the industrialized meat complex, and and uh, and I think that you know eventually consumer choice is going to push them along that path, just because their profitability, I truly think, is going to be diminished as as every new YouTube video comes out that you know describes some outrageous practice on a on a you know ranch or a farm or. A, hog production facility or whatever, you know, there's people get bummed out by that. And that's well, the kind but of stuff you know, that at the same to... time, how do you give common sense to people? I mean, <laughs> I mean, seriously, I mean, it, it, it's like, uh, you, you could, you could film somebody's home of a guy beating up his wife and, and the way that they do it with these animal things is, is saying that everybody does that. And, uh, you know, they're 500. Th- I mean, and, and, you know, these guys, they love to film pigs because pigs make all kinds of noise. Yeah. You know, but I mean, there's already been huge changes in commercial agriculture. I hate the word industrial agriculture because it sounds like, you know, pigs are flying out of a chimney stack. Well, they and, kind of, uh, well, they're, they're sort know, of flying it's, it's, down it's, the it's, chute. It's not, it's not the romantic of some people, but, uh, you know, I've always believed that you cannot make money uh, with livestock by mistreating them. You just can't. It can't yes. be done. And I think that uh, if you look at one of my complaints from a long time ago uh, in these hog farms with these gestation crates, well, they're all changing. And Smithfield, to their great credit, has really taken the high road because there are different ways of doing it, but they've taken the most expensive and best way of doing it. Um, But I I work with a group who uh, they stopped using gestation crates in 1986. Wow. And, you know, Temple learned a lot of her stuff uh, when she first did. We were her first client Mm -hmm. uh, with pigs back when I was at Sara Lee. And Temple is first and foremost a very practical person. Yes, she is. (laughs) She is. That's one of the reasons why I enjoy her. Well, listen, Raul, I'm sorry sorry to say we must wrap this up, this fascinating conversation. And I, I do hope you'll be a guest again. It's great to get the insight of somebody who has been in the industry for so long and who understands it from um, sort of an economic standpoint that I think a lot of other people find hard to wrap their heads around. So um, I thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anything you want to promote for us? Is there, do you have like a website or, no, or a book? No, nope. I'm, you're just a smart. I'm just in this for the spiritual reward. You're, <laughs> because yeah. you are the international man of meat. On your I, card, you please. Know, I'll, I'll have to take that into a Buddhist temple and see how that works. <laughs> I'm going to be telling Rita Jane Gabbett and uh, and Emily Meredith that you are now to be referred to as the International Man of Meat from now on. Anyway, okay. thank you so much for being on the you show. <laughs> thanks, and thanks for listening. Thanks to my sponsor and thanks to my engineer. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, 
or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>